Open your Bible, please, if you will. The book of John, chapter number one. John chapter one, and follow me as I read the word of God. In the beginning was the word, capital W, that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus, or the word, was with God, and the word was God. A powerful statement of his deity. The word, Jesus, was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And that in the beginning has the idea of way before the universe was even created, back in the eons of eternity past. Here's another thing about Jesus that most people don't know. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So many people have the idea that God the Father did creation alone and Jesus was not involved. Jesus was involved in every part of the creation process. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness. And the darkness of this world comprehended it not. Now verse 9. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him. Another statement about his creation. But the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, not by physical relationship, nor of the will of the flesh, not anything we can do, nor of the will of man, but of God. And some theologians, many theologians say this is the single greatest verse in the entire New Testament. It is absolutely full of Christian doctrine. And the word was made flesh, the incarnation. And he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And you may be seated. <clears throat> the series is Reality, Making Sense of a Crazy World. Reality, Making Sense of a Crazy World. I've been emphasizing this thing of worldview. And the worldview, our worldview, and every one of us have a worldview, but we're emphasizing a biblical worldview here. A worldview is the way that we look at life and interpret life. It is the lens through which we view the events and happenings of our life. And I've used the illustration each week and I just remind you of it, but it's so important, I don't want you to forget it, that when we work a puzzle, we find the pieces that constitute the frame of the puzzle. And we look for the ones with the square edges or the, the straight edges. And then we get the frame of the puzzle and we put it together and then we begin to fill in that which is on the inside of the puzzle. 
And in the same way today, we, I've picked out the pieces with the straight edges. And in this series, I'm framing the puzzle of life, if you will. And I want you to get that frame built in your mind. That's our worldview. That's the way we look at and interpret life. Once we have those pieces in place, the rest of the pieces begin to fit sort of easily. And the pieces are, we began with God. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1 and 1. And then we went to man. And then last week we talked about sin, how man fell from his state of perfection. And sin entered in through Satan and man falling into temptation. Now today we come to the next major piece of the puzzle, and it's Jesus. And I've read to you this very great scripture here about the Lord Jesus Christ. Monday morning, Norma and I left and uh, took a little trip, and we didn't get in until Friday night. We hadn't taken many trips recently. We really had a wonderful week. And we headed up to Florence, Kentucky, which is the city a bedroom community beside Cincinnati, Ohio. And there you find the Creation Museum. We've been sending our grade school kids, all of our sixth graders go every year up there and they spend several days. We take them because it is such a wonderful place to shape one's worldview, to really get a biblical view of life. And so we drove there and enjoyed spending a couple of days with uh, are there in the museum and, and with some friends, Herb and Pat Rawlings, good friends of ours. And then the next day we went to visit the ark, which is about 40 miles away. Answers in Genesis, people have built both of those. And I'll do a little commercial and I get nothing for it. You really ought to go up there if you can. It was one of the most spiritually strengthening and inspiring things I've ever seen. And to just stand back and look at that ark, it is overwhelming. You, you, you know, if they told me that Noah put the whole world in that ark, I'd believe it. I mean, not just the animals, I mean, it is some structure. And you walk through there several hours, you read the signs, you see how the Bible can just come alive before your very eyes. I would really encourage you, if you can at all, to go visit those two attractions. Now, I use my seven pieces of the puzzle here that I've been sharing with you. They use it in a, di a little different manner, but it's the same way. They build the frame for the worldview, and they call it the seven C's of history. The seven C's, like the letter A, B, C. And by that, they use seven words that all begin with C. Creation, it always, all, always begins there. And then corruption, that would be the fall. That's sin, where sin entered in. And then catastrophe, which was the flood that God judged the world of that day. And then confusion, where the languages and tongues of people were confused at the Tower of Babel. And then Christ, and then the cross, and then consummation, the end of all things that is yet in the future. And so either way you do it, we're framing our puzzle up. We're putting the edges around it so you can begin to see the picture, to have a biblical 
view of life to interpret things not according to Fox News or uh, the New York Times or whatever it may be, but we interpret life using the lens of the Holy Scripture. And the Bible, as I've told you each week, is a narrative, a story, but it is not a mystical, mythical, fairy tale story. The Bible is a true story. It is God's true account of human history. Say that with me. God's true account of human history. Key word, true. True. Every word of God is true. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. John 17, 17. So, the Bible's our true narrative. It's God's story of reality and of human history. And when we get this all put together, it answers the big ultimate questions of life. Ultimate questions, questions that every human being that's a thinking person is at some point in his or her existence, they're going to ask themselves, who am I? We've already answered that. I'm a human being made in the image of God that has an eternal immortal soul that distinguishes me from every other form of life on the planet. Where did I come from? Why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? That's the fall and other issues, of course. Is there any purpose or meaning in life or is it just an animal level existence just at a little higher level than the rest of the animals. What happens after I die? What happens? That's an ultimate question. Hey, let me ask you really another one I haven't used up until now. Can I know God? Can a human being know God? And can a human being know that he knows God? Is that possible? Well, God's true narrative of human history says that those things, it gives me the answer to those questions, if you will. Now, so today we're going to take this next piece of our puzzle, and we're going to talk about history's most influential figure, the most influential person in all of human history. Of course, I speak of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was in a discussion one day with a bunch of religious leaders, Here's what he said to them, then here's what I say to you. I began today asking you this question. I want you to answer it honestly from your heart. Come on, give me your mind. Don't, don't, don't stray a bit. This is important. This is an ultimate question too. Here's the question. What do you think of Jesus? What do you really honestly in your soul of souls what do you think of the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ in your life? Is he just a religious word, a verbalization of some concept that you hear about at a church? Or is he really the man, the one, the person, the being in whom you put all of your hopes, all of your faith? Well, let me talk to you about him. And I begin with number one this morning. Jesus Christ is absolutely unique in the annals of history. He is unique, absolutely different 
in both his nature and his life from any other person who ever lived. And there are three facts I want to give you today, if you're taking notes with me. There are three things that set him apart from every other man who ever lived on the planet. First of all, he is the only person whose life satisfies the tests of reason and history. He is the only person who his life can satisfy the tests of both reason and history. You see, the details of his life were publicly announced and written down in some cases, hundreds and hundreds of years before he ever even came to the earth. Now, that ought to impress you. If you have uh, one drop of skepticism in your soul today, it really ought to impress you that here here are these holy men of old writing the Old Testament books of the Bible. They're describing a person yet to be born Some of them a 1,000 years before, some 700 years before, some 300 or 400 years before, 400 years before. They're writing about this person, and they're saying that he's coming, but he's not here yet. And then when he finally comes, all the things that they prophesied and all the things that they foretold and projected about him, we can actually see them occurring in his life. The details of his life were announced before he was ever born. For example, his birth was prophesied by Isaiah about 700 years before he was born, that behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. That was never done before, but now it occurs at his birth. Micah was a prophet about 500 years before the Lord Jesus Christ lived. And Micah wrote, but Bethlehem of Ephratah, out of thee shall he come whose goings forth have been foretold from everlasting. In other words, the one that people have talked about from the beginning of history is going to be born in a little tiny town called Bethlehem. And that was written 500 years before it ever occurred. His entire life is described before his birth. In fact, he is a central figure in every single Old Testament book. And his death is described in great detail before he ever experienced his death. For example, if you go to the book of Psalms 22, now don't turn there, I don't have time, but just write that down if you're interested. You can go back and read the 22nd Psalm. The 22nd Psalm was written 1,000 years, a millennia, before the Lord Jesus Christ was ever born and ever came to the earth. 1,000 years before he was ever born, a man named David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote down the details of his death. It talked about, he talked about the soldiers gambling for his garments. He talked about Jesus saying, I'm thirsty. He talked about many, many details in Psalm 22. How do you explain that except from the superintending hand of Almighty God? And then in Isaiah chapter 43, 700 years before he died, you have the the old prophet there again describing All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. And on and on and on he goes, describing again the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Details that fit in no other person's death. And even his resurrection, about 15 or 1,800 years before Christ came to the earth, a man named Job wrote this as he was experiencing what he thought might be his own death. He said, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And on the final day, at the end of time, he will stand upon the earth again. Now, wait a minute. This is the Redeemer who died on the cross. And yet, though he was dead, Job said he will stand in the latter day upon the earth and he will judge the inhabitants thereof. So you see, his life was foretold. He fulfills all these promises and more too. And if you're a skeptic today, if you're an unbeliever, if you're really questioning the legitimacy of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. You pray tell me how all those things could have been prophesied. Not just one thing where it could have been a coincidence, but scores of details over and over and over. These prophets are giving out this information, writing it down for the world to see. They can't backtrack on it. And then it proves to be accurate. Jesus is the only person whose life satisfies the tests of reason and of history. Number two though, once he appeared, once he got here, he struck history with such a blow that he split it in two. I like that statement. Once he appeared, he struck history with such a blow, he split it in two. You see, we use him as the demarcation level or line for all of history. And so everything that occurred before him, we refer to it as what? B.C. Everything that occurred after him, we refer to it as A.D. Now, interesting thing is happening in our world. There's a big movement today to get rid of the A.D. and call it C.E., the common era. And you'll see that now. And what, why in the world would we want to change it? When he is the dividing line, it still means the same thing. You can't get away from that. The common era, it is a way of not recognizing Jesus Christ and his appearance upon this earth. So I stick with the AD, and I hope that you will too. And isn't it interesting that even those who deny him, even those who deny him have to date their attack from the date of his birth. <laughs> So here's an atheist, and he hates Jesus Christ, and he denies Jesus Christ, but he writes a check, and he has to put down Jesus' birth, he has to date that check from the birthday of Jesus, whether he wants to or not. I just think that's so cool. I just, you ought to pay me extra for that. <laughs> now that, that's, isn't, that, isn't that, can't you see this atheist, and he's just grinding his teeth, and smoke is coming out his ears, because he has to write down March 26th. 2017, and you want to say, hey, buddy, what's that 2017 about there? Well, uh, that's about, it dates it from the birthday of the Jesus guy. Well, I thought he didn't exist. But the whole world dates their checks from that birthday. I just think that's really cool. I can tell you're not as impressed as I am, but you ought to wake up. You'd be more impressed. Amen. All right. 
So anyhow, once he appeared, he struck history with such a blow, he split it in two. His impact upon history is undeniable. Human rights. More people owe their rights to Jesus Christ and his teachings than any other or all other people combined. His impact upon law and what is just and not just. His impact upon philosophy. More books have been written about his life and teachings and death than any other person in history. His impact upon art. Go to the great art museums and you will see that fully high percentage of those paintings in some way involve the life of the one I speak about this morning. Think about music. All the great music from symphonic music, the Messiah, Isaiah 53, right on down to the pop tunes of the day, but they all, in so many cases, have to acknowledge the contribution of Jesus Christ. So he's the only person whose life satisfies the test of reason and history. And number two, once he came, he struck history with such a blow that he literally split it into the most influential person in history. Number three, he was the only person to live his life backwards. He was the only person to live his life backwards. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? I mean this that the story of every other human life is the story of their life. The emphasis is upon the years that they lived upon the earth. But in his case, that's not true. The most important thing about Jesus Christ is not his life. It is his death. Most people, the death is just the postscript at the end, and we talk about their achievements, their accomplishments in life but not Jesus. In Jesus' case, the most important thing was not his life. The most important thing was his death and his resurrection, the heart of the gospel today. And the book of Revelation says it like this, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Before the world was created, the plan was already in effect. That when man was created, God knew that he would rebel and he would sin. And God made him anyhow. Because God wanted fellowship and he wanted to love man. He wanted someone made in his image. And so he created man. And knowing that the lamb would have to be slain to atone for the sins of his own creation. I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. The point that I'm making is he was the only person to live his life backwards. That in his case, his death was far more significant than even his life. Now, I'm not denigrating his life, but I'm telling you the most important thing was his death because therein is the gospel and our hope of salvation. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, Let me show you how important it was to him. Because in Matthew chapter 16, he prophesied his own death and his resurrection. Now again, this is such powerful evidence for him 
him being who he said he was. Matthew chapter 16, and in verse number 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. See, there's the gospel. Suffer, be killed, be raised again the third day. Go over to chapter 17 now, verse number 22. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, the son of man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. They shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. Go over to chapter 20 and verse number 18. And as you turn through here, I hope you're getting the point. Behold, Jesus said, Matthew 20 and 18, we go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the chief, unto the chief priest and unto the scribes and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, the Romans, to mock and to scourge and to crucify and the third day he shall rise again. There's just three examples that Jesus Christ gathered his disciples around him before the fact. Again, he prophesied his own death, burial and resurrection. And before the fact, he said, fellows, we're going up to Jerusalem. And when we get there, I'm going to be taken captive. I'm going to suffer great suffering. And then I'm going to be killed. But then I'm going to rise again from the dead. Three different times right here in Matthew, and in fact, you can go through the Gospels and see it for yourself if you wish to. But over and over, the Lord Jesus Christ prophesies his own death and resurrection. Interesting thing right there before you shut your Bible in Matthew chapter 16, go back there with me. In chapter 16, after he says this, in verse 22, Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, no, Lord, be it far from thee. This shall not be unto you. No, Lord, you can't go up there and die. What in the world are you talking about? We need you here. And Jesus turned and said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Why did he refer to Peter as Satan? He calls him the devil. He did because it was always Satan's intention to keep Christ from being the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Had Satan been able to keep Jesus off the cross, we wouldn't be sitting here this morning worshiping him as our Lord and our Savior. And so Jesus rebuked Peter because he was discouraging him in the heart of his very mission. Jesus didn't come like a political leader. He didn't, deliver, he didn't try to deliver people by defeating the Roman Empire and establishing an earthly kingdom, though he could have had he wanted to. But he came to die. He lived his life backwards. Everyone else is born to live. He was born to die. And why? Because he, that was the way to defeat evil. 
It was the way to begin the process of destroying sin and cleansing the universe. Did you notice on my picture frame, I said, God, man, sin, Jesus, cross, resurrection. And what's the last one? Restoration. The cross was step one in the process of restoring this universe to what it was before sin ever came. Now listen to me. I don't want you to miss this because a lot of Christians don't understand this. What a blessing this week. I tell you, I just, uh, I just about shouted at times at that creation museum. It's just wonderful. And I looked at the Garden of Eden, and there were depictions of that that were just absolutely wonderful, so lifelike. The characters even talk to you with animatronics and so on, you know. And you read the plaques, and you begin to think about the Scripture and what you know of what it must have been like to live in a sinless world. A perfect world, no death, no disease, no hatred, none of the ills that plague humanity, no poverty, every need met. And I stand there and read that and literally get goosebumps on my arms as I read it and think about it. And I think what we lost because of sin, but the blessing was we're going to have that again. That's why Jesus died. We don't say that often enough. We turn it into personal salvation. Do you know the Lord is going to restore this universe to what it was before sin ever entered? And the cross was punch number one on the devil. And it, didn't, it wasn't a terminal punch because there's more in God's plan. But the cross was step one in God's plan of restoration of the entire universe, far more involved than just my personal salvation. And the cross, of course, God has always demanded faith from the people that followed him, from believers. Abraham, do you believe me enough to get up and leave your home country and go to a place that I will show you? If you do, here are certain promises. Noah, do you believe me enough that you will hammer and saw and build that monstrous structure and pull various kinds into the ark and save them from the judgment which is going to fall because all of mankind has hardened their heart against me? God has always required faith. By grace are you saved through faith. And not of yourselves, not the works of your hands, but faith in Jesus Christ. And not faith in what Jesus Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount, as wonderful as that is, but specifically faith that he went to the cross, shed his blood, paid for your sins, and you're trusting that and only that for your, your eternal salvation. He was the only person to live his life backwards. The story of everybody else puts the importance on their life. His story puts the importance on his death. Now, another point I want to make. 
The creator, in Jesus Christ, the creator became a man. That blows my mind. I can't get my mind around that. That the one who spoke the worlds, the universes into existence became one of us. He was a true human being. We talk about the virgin birth being a great thing, and it was. But let me tell you, that wasn't the miracle. Because his birth was just like mine. I came from my mother's womb, just as Jesus came from his mother's womb. The miracle was not in the birth. The miracle was in the conception. The miraculous conception where the Holy Ghost put his hand upon a little Jewish girl. And she became impregnated with Jesus Christ. And then she carried him for nine months and he was born like any other human. The old creed says that he was fully human, fully divine. Back in the fourth century, people were fighting about what was the nature of Jesus. Is Jesus really God? How could he be God and man? Is he half God and is he half man? All these questions were flying around in those days. And leaders of the various churches came together, and here was the definition they came up with, and it's never been surpassed. It's wonderful. Jesus was fully human and fully divine. He's not 50% God and 50% man. He's 100% God and 100% man. He He made claims that nobody ever before him had made. He claimed to have existed before he was born. He said that if he pardoned someone's sins, that it would be forgiven. Only God can do that. He taught that the same honor ought to be given to him as was owed to God. He said that one day he would judge the world himself. He was either on a high, an egomaniac, or he was who he said he was. He said that all who trust in him will never, ever die. And then he backed up his claims by demonstrating what he claimed to be. For example, he claimed to be the bread of life. And then at that same place, he fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. He referred to himself as the light of the world and then healed a blind man. Twice he claimed to be the resurrection and the life and then demonstrated the truth of that by raising a person from the dead. In his lifetime, he demonstrated that he had power over every part of the universe. He had, he had power over nature. And so in the middle of a storm, he speaks and the winds calm and the waves lie down. He had power over animals. On the day of his entering Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, He mounted a little colt, and it says, whereon no man had ever sat. Would you like trying to ride a donkey that nobody had ever broken? You might end up high in the air somewhere. But Jesus Christ, the master, the creator, rode that little donkey that day, an unbroken colt. He had power over the fowls of the air. He prophesied when a rooster would crow three different times. He had power over the fish of the sea. He directed a fish with a coin in its mouth to go to Peter's net so they could pay their taxes. Devils obeyed his command. 
Diseases obeyed his command. Death obeyed his command. He's the one who made everything, the one who made everything entered history through a virgin's womb, but he was God in human flesh. In fact, to be precise, and here's a statement I want you to get. To be precise, God did not change into a man. Rather, he added human nature to his divine nature in the man, Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is God who became a man. And Jesus is man that God became. Fully human. Fully divine. And several times in his life you see him, it appears he has a consciousness of both of those natures inside himself. It's, it's a mistake for us to think that he left part of himself in heaven. He did not. Part of him didn't stay in heaven and part of him come to earth. You see, God is not made in pieces. The parts of him are not here and, and, and there. Again, to be precise, God did not change into a man. Don't ever think that. He added human nature to his divine nature, which already existed. And we know him as Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, our Lord, our master, our savior. Question, look up here and get it. Pilate stands, he's washed his hands. Three times he's addressed the crowd, I find no fault in this just man. His wife said, you get away from this. Leave him alone. This is, this is not a guilty man. You exonerate him. And three times he proclaimed his innocence and the crowd egged him on. And in true political style, he ducks the question. And he turns to that crowd standing before him. Listen to the question. I ask it of you. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? It's my question to you, friend. It doesn't matter in this sense for you, regarding your salvation about your membership at the Baptist temple. I ask you, what have you done with Jesus Christ? What is Jesus Christ to you? God's always required faith. Is your faith in him? Are you trusting solely in him and nothing else for your salvation? Our heads are bowed as we close the service this morning.